Well, let's turn for our reading from the Word of God this evening to the book of Exodus. We are beginning to read at Exodus 13 and verse 17 and carrying on then through chapter 14. And Pharaoh let the people go. God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people round by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the first part of uh, chapter 14 uh, recounts how the Lord says he will harden uh, Pharaoh's heart, although he's agreed to let the Israelites go. He'll change his mind and pursue them. And so we pick up the account in verse 10, chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. 
During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion, made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it. The Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. When the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Some dates are never to be forgotten. We can think of birthdays, anniversaries, and men, we've never forgotten any of them, have we? Well, some dates certainly should not be forgotten. We can think on the national uh, level, of course, of dates that were formative in the identity of people, of nations, uh, dates that are stamped on the consciousness uh, of people. Uh, they recall events of crucial significance. We can think in our own context, of course, uh, of those for whom 1690 is the crucial date. For others of a different persuasion, 1916. Uh, would be more the date uh, that they remember. Of course, there are two fundamentally different identities that looked uh, to different dates in history. For the Israelites, it undoubtedly was the exodus that was crucial for their identity. It crops up constantly in the Old Testament scriptures. They look back to the exodus. This is what formed them as a people. And we reach that point in their history this evening. So we're coming to uh, this vital point in the history of Israel this evening. We're looking at the portion uh, that runs from chapter 13, verse 17, through to the end of chapter 14. God's glory at the Red Sea. Because that essentially is what this portion is about. There are many things of interest, as we will see, but God's glory at the Red Sea is the very heart of this record. And really there, there are simply two things that we see uh, in this portion, uh, both of which demonstrate God's glory very different ways. One in relation to Israel, and that would be the bulk of what we're looking at, uh, but also the other in relation to the Egyptians, and we mustn't overlook that too, both of them. That demonstrate the glory of God in these events. But first and foremost, uh, we want to think first of all of undeserved deliverance. Undeserved deliverance. Uh, and there are a number of uh, issues relating to uh, the going out of the Israelites uh, that 
we want to notice here, recorded by Moses, but under the direction, of course, of God the Holy Spirit. And the first thing we mustn't miss here is Joseph's faith. Now, suddenly, we're we're right back to the days of Joseph, 430 years earlier, far distant past. And from our uh, modern perspective, or anything old is irrelevant, something 430 years ago, for us, the end of the Tudor period, uh, surely is utterly uh, irrelevant, historical curiosity, but the faith of Joseph all those centuries before isn't irrelevant. It's vital, in fact. Verse 19 of chapter 13, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. And it's a fulfillment of an obligation uh, that Joseph has imposed upon them. You can go all the way back to the very end of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 24. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, we're told. And there in Genesis 50, the oath is recorded. They are to take the bones of Joseph back to Canaan. And now, 430 years later, that oath is going to be fulfilled. So what's the meaning of Joseph's request? It's not just a kind of emotional attachment to his homeland. Uh, People, of course, can experience that. There are people who, who want to be buried where they grew up or in some place of sentimental significance to them, but that's not the point for Joseph. This is a statement of faith. That's what is so important about it. What faith? The faith we have spelled out for us here, God will surely come to your aid or God will surely visit you. And Joseph, all those centuries before, knew that God would bring this people out of bondage and take them back to Canaan and give them the land for their own. An assurance that God is watching over them. He's taking a practical interest in them. Very interesting, the word that Joseph used, that God would visit you or come to your aid, is the very word God himself uses in Exodus 3.16, the beginning of these events, where God says, I have visited you. I have come to your aid. It's not, it's not an accident that that word is used. It was a prelude to deliverance, and now here is that deliverance. Why could Joseph speak in this way? Why uh, did he have such faith? It's because he's trusting the covenant promises of God. He's taking God at his word. Joseph isn't being fanciful or optimistic. He's taking God at his word. The covenant promises that went back to Abraham, the promise of Canaan as a homeland, Genesis 13, 15, the first time God said, I'll give you this land. God was committed to it, so Joseph simply believed what God had said. He's a man of faith. He knows the Lord will not fail to keep his word, and Israel will possess the land of promise. Uh, And Joseph was buried there. Uh, Joshua 24 Verse 32, Joseph is buried in Shechem, the land that his father had given him as a special inheritance. And it's picked up in the New Testament. Hebrews 11, great chapter about the, the heroes of faith. Hebrews eleven twenty two, by faith, 
Joseph spoke. That's exactly what he did. And here now, something surely would encourage the Israelites. There are the bones of a man of faith being taken along with them to Canaan. That Joseph was sure God would give his people. And now the people of God are on their way. It's an encouragement to faith. So Joseph's faith, the first thing to note. But then also we need to see here God's guidance. That also stands out uh, at the end of chapter 13. Interesting, we're told God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country. Uh, And we're told why God didn't take them the short route. They could have been uh, in Canaan a matter of weeks But God didn't take them that way. He understood the danger of discouragement if they had an early battle uh, with a a powerful opponent, which the Philistines were even at this period. Now, of course, we know God could have swept the Philistines aside the way he swept everybody else aside who opposed his people. Uh, The Philistines were no obstacle to God. And if he had wished, he could have taken Israel the short route, destroyed the Philistines, given them Canaan. But he didn't do that. Why did he not do that? is another purpose. Purpose, it would seem, of in the wilderness forging this gathering of tribes into a nation. You'll see that at Sinai. It's probably where we'll stop uh, our series when we get Israel to Sinai. But he's establishing as a nation, not just a collection of tribes. And he'll do that in the wilderness. And the very various experiences he's going to lead them through. And of course, for the day-to-day guidance, the Lord also provides for that, doesn't he? The Lord, we are told, went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Were there two pillars? Was there just one that was cloud in the day and fire at night? I think probably that's a bit more likely, but it doesn't essentially matter in the end. God guided them in a supernatural way way. And the cloud, whether it's uh, and the pillar, the cloud in the day, the fire at night was a symbol of the Lord's presence. That's what mattered. It told Israel, the Lord is with you. The Lord is guiding you. And we're told that specifically in chapter 14 and verse 19. The angel of the Lord, really, the angel of God is going ahead of them. Uh, And the pillar is just a, a symbol or reminder the angel of God is leading you that's what matters the angel of God probably the same figure that Moses met at the burning bush remember back in chapter 3 the angel of the Lord spoke out of the burning bush that wasn't consumed and here is the angel of the Lord again and who did we say the angel of the Lord was in chapter 3 it's God himself It is most likely it's the second person of the Trinity. It's the Son of God before his incarnation. Isn't that wonderful to think the Son of God is leading Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, delivering them, just as the Son of God incarnate will deliver sinners from their sin and the bondage of sin at the time set by God himself. God's guidance is by the Son himself, made visible in the 
pillars, but it's God guiding them. Joseph's faith, God's guidance. It's been going well, but now we have to remember Israel's fear. And this really underlines the undeserved deliverance. This is not a gathering of extremely godly, devout people with unshakable faith. It's not like that. When everything seems to be going well, the Israelites find themselves trapped. Trapped between the Egyptians that are following them to bring them back and the Red Sea. Now, the geography of these chapters is difficult. You can look at the maps if you have them in your Bible. Read up on it if you wish. Where exactly were the Israelites going isn't entirely clear. The Red Sea, remember, is the Sea of Reeds. We tend to think the Red Sea, maybe it was colored red. It's not. It's the Sea of Reeds. But where exactly did they cross and how has it changed in the intervening millennia? And we don't need to worry. The Lord says in the scriptures, he leads Israel across the Red Sea. Ultimately, that's all we need to know. Where it was precisely geographically, look into it if you want, but you don't need to worry about it. God parted the sea, took Israel across. That's sufficient. But it doesn't look as if that's going to happen, does it? Here the Israelites facing the sea in front of them, the Egyptians behind them, And we might think, well, all right, the Israelites will say to themselves, ten times in the plagues we have seen the power of God. Ten times God has shown himself to be the true God and has poured out judgment on Egypt. And he'll make sure we're kept safe. But they don't do that, do they? After ten displays of the power of God, And with all the promises, the promises that Joseph had believed, the promises of deliverance, instead, verse 10, chapter 14, they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. I say, oh, well, that's a good thing, but they're not crying out in faith. They're crying out in panic. And that becomes obvious. And the words recorded there that they spoke to Moses, that shows you what's in their hearts. You can hear them. It's the whine of the Israelites that Moses is going to have to listen to all the way through the wilderness. Time after time, they'll be whining at him till Moses eventually loses his temper and ends up not going into Canaan himself. Here they are. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt you brought us to the desert to die? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Did they say that? Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Hardly matters. That's what they're saying now. Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. Well, when they cried out to God, beginning the book of Exodus, they weren't saying, leave us alone, we'd be better off serving the Egyptians. But now that's what they're saying. The voice of fear, the voice of despair. They can't see any hope that it would have been better. How could it have been better to serve the Egyptians? And the bondage, the firstborn, the the male children being thrown into the Nile and so on. And, And of course, it's all now covered in a rosy sort of a glow. 
as they're standing facing the sea ahead, the Egyptians behind, and they've no hope. No confidence in God's word. That's the problem. But it isn't always history as we read these things. Because too often as we think, oh, that's the Israelites for you. What a miserable crowd they were. And then you think sometimes maybe we're not so different. Maybe sometimes we can hear ourselves in the things that the Israelites are saying. Because the danger is when we look at circumstances and when we let circumstances decide how we feel and how we think, rather than the promises of God, we're going down the same road. When we focus on the problems and the difficulties and the struggles and the trials and we forget what God has promised, we'll find ourselves thinking, if not saying, something maybe not so very different from what the Israelites were saying. In trying times, we need to keep our focus on God's word and God's promises. If we don't do that, then we're in trouble. And praise the Lord, there was one except there were more exceptions than Moses, but Moses stands out. Here's a man of faith in the midst of people despairing, people losing hope. Moses said, the Lord will fight for you. Here is a man of faith, a man of tremendous strength. And it's going to be tested in the months and years that lie ahead through the wilderness up to the border of Canaan. A man of God, a strong leader, and that is what Israel need, and that is what God has given them. A man who won't cave in to the whining, the complaining, the despair, the disbelief of Israel. And openly as a leader, as a man to set an example, expressing his trust in the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. But Israel's fear tells us there's a very mixed gathering of people. And when they get into the wilderness and things start to get tough, we'll see just how weak they can be and how much they complain. They're never satisfied. And times Moses went to the Lord and just cried out to God when he felt he couldn't cope with this crowd any longer. Israel's fear. But one more thing we need to say about the undeserved deliverance. And this is the heart of the matter. And that's God's victory. We can become wrapped up, give our attention to the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. The, the, the destruction of the Egyptians, we might say the Charlton Heston moments. Moses raising his staff and the sea being parted. And this is the big thing, but it isn't. The focus of the account is on the Lord. It's not Moses. Moses is only the man who lifts the staff. God is the one who divides the sea. God is the one who performs the miracle and leads Israel out of bondage. If we lose sight of that, we lose, lose sight of the point of the record here. It's God's work on behalf of his people. So verse 30, the Lord saved 
Israel. They certainly couldn't deliver themselves. They couldn't part the sea. They couldn't defeat the Egyptians. There's nothing they can do. And Moses was right. The Lord will fight for you. There is no room for any doubt about the source of the victory. It's the Lord. Not Israel. Not Moses. It's the Lord. And so you notice what the Lord says. Verse 17. I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. All the glory in these tremendous events belongs to the Lord. He never forsakes his people. And we think of the tremendous promise we have in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 5. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And he was the God who never left his people and never forsook them there at the Red Sea. He's the same God today for you and for me. He will never fail us. And the result of the promise of God and the work of God as far as Israel were concerned, verse 31, isn't it striking? The people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. It is not saying all these people were converted, they were all saved. That'll be evident once they're in the wilderness. There are a lot of people here who have no faith in God. But at this point, there is a deep impression made on them. And among them, there are many believers. And that's why you read in Hebrews eleven twenty nine, by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea. By faith. It's not significant. There were many believers among them. There was Moses, there was Caleb, there was Joshua. There were many others. But it's God's victory. And seeing that victory would strengthen the faith of God's true people. As every evidence of the power of God should strengthen our faith if we belong to the Lord. He is the center. He is the focus. He is the deliverer. But it is an undeserved deliverance. I've said the bulk of our attention must be on God's glory as far as Israel is concerned, his glory in leading them out from bondage. We can't finish without remembering there's another side to the revelation of God's glory here. And that's deserved judgment. There's undeserved deliverance. Praise the Lord for it. But there's also deserved judgment. Another side to the Lord taking the Israelites across the Red Sea. He's working out his purpose for Israel, but he's also working out his purpose regarding the Egyptians. And it's very clear, ten plagues, ten mighty demonstrations of the power of the God of Israel have not softened the hearts of Pharaoh and his officials. Pharaoh eventually said, get out, get out of my land, Go and worship your God, but his heart isn't really changed. And so again, the Lord acts as a judge. He acts judicially. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He says in verse 4 of chapter 14, 
but I will gain glory for myself. There again, the glory of God at the Red Sea. The glory in liberating Israel, but also the glory in judging the Egyptians. And that's what unfolds in chapter 14. It is the judgment of God, Israel's covenant God, judging his enemies. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. He hardens the hearts of the Egyptians in general. They pursue Israel to disaster. And God again is glorified. Don't miss that. He's glorified in Israel. He's glorified with regard to the Egyptians. And you see in the Egyptians the utter folly of sin. Sin is so foolish. Here are people who have witnessed the power of God, the powerlessness of their own deities. And still, verse 5, Pharaoh and his officials change their minds. Do they never learn? No, they don't. Apart from the grace of God, they'll never learn. All they can think about is the loss of cheap labor. They think of the choice. On the one hand, ten mighty acts that demonstrate the power of God. And on the other hand, a lot of cheap workers are escaping. Which is going to weigh more heavily for the Egyptians? That's the loss of the cheap workers. A folly of sin. They ignore the demonstrations of God's power. There's no spiritual change on their part. You think, how can they think they'll frustrate the exodus? How do they think on this one occasion, after the ten plagues, as it were, on the eleventh attempt, they're going to beat God? It's foolish. It's lunacy. And yet there they are, off down the road in their chariots to try and defeat the God of Israel, the God who took the lives of their firstborn. And they think, with their puny efforts, they'll frustrate God's purpose. It is ludicrous. But isn't sin fundamentally irrational and foolish? Why would Adam in Eden, with all the riches of Eden, Disobey the one prohibition God gave. It is foolish. And our sins are foolish. They're evil before God, but they're foolish as well. And the one who will not acknowledge God, the one who will not submit to God, well, God himself calls him a fool. Psalm 14, 1. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. And we've often commented, it is more than likely, it's not the person who says God doesn't exist. The, the atheist in modern terms. There weren't many of them about in the ancient world. There's still not that many about today. It's the person who says, if there's a God, he doesn't matter. If there's a God, he's no significance for my life. That's the fool. And that's what every one of us is by nature. We're fools before God because we want to live as if he doesn't matter but life apart from the grace of God is foolishness here we are little sinners shaking our tiny fists at almighty God 
That's what the Egyptians are doing. Their little chariots and their armies and their weapons. And Almighty God looks down and sweeps them away. Utterly, utterly foolish. But isn't that the folly of our hearts? Until the grace of God saves us. The Lord who opened the Red Sea for his people closed it on the Egyptians. The water flowed back and covered them. And as the Lord said, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did. See, the panic, as probably not their wheels came off, their wheels were clogged as they were trying to get across in the sand. And they start to panic. Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them. There's an awareness the God of Israel is at work, but it's too late. It's not the voice of faith. And they try to turn and run. And the wrath of God descends upon them. The Lord swept them into the sea. But the truth is, for every unrepentant sinner... One day the day of grace will pass. One day the waters of judgment will sweep down. And it'll be too late. Remember in the book of Revelation. In the judgment people calling on the mountains to cover them. The rocks to hide them. The day of grace will pass. The day of opportunity. All are going to bow to Christ. Bear that in mind. Every human being will bow to Christ. Philippians 2.10 says every knee will bow. By grace many will bow in faith. And rejoice to bow to Christ. And praise him. But others will bow in rebellion. But the resistance will not matter. They will bow to Christ as he judges them and pours out his wrath upon them. And were it not for the grace of God, that would describe all of us. That's what we deserve. The folly of our sin. Only grace can save. The God who delivered Israel delivers us from the bondage of our sin and all the glory of is his. It is undeserved deliverance. You know that. I know that. Undeserved deliverance. But may the grace of God grant that none here would experience the deserved judgment when the Lord returns in his glory and the day of grace is past. The opportunity is gone. And the payment that sin has earned will be given out the wages that are death as Paul reminds us undeserved deliverance praise the Lord glory to God deserved judgment glory to God the righteous judge he alone is glorified may we be those who experience the deliverance by grace And praise him for all he's done for us.